0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am Stephen Hausman. I'm an assistant professor in the History Department at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I am your host for this interview. And today, I'm speaking with Eric Porter. Dr. Porter is a professor of history at the University of California at Santa Cruz and is the author of A People's History of S.F.O., The Making of the Bay Area and an Airport, which came out with the University of California Press just a couple months ago, earlier this year in 2023. Uh, Welcome to the New Books Network, Eric. Good to have you here.
0: Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here.
1: First, why don't we just start as we always do on the New Books Network by just hearing a little bit about yourself as an author. What is your background? And in particular, I'm interested in hearing how you became interested in history.
0: Okay, well, I'm from the Bay Area originally. I guess I would describe myself as a late convert to history. Um, I didn't really grow up as a history buff but became interested in history and also interdisciplinary studies interdisciplinary histories in college um, so just you know was drawn to a variety of different kinds of courses um, began to think more historically about the world at that point in time and eventually that led to my entry in a phd program in American studies um, where I well studied American studies but also but had a disciplinary foundation in history and have since done a lot of different kinds of historical work, um, primarily trained as an intellectual and cultural historian. I've done a lot of work in music studies and um, uh, traditional intellectual history. I have a book on W.E.B. Du Bois and um, have since moved into urban studies, urban history.
1: And I'm curious what brought you to this topic in particular. You and I were were chatting a little bit before we started recording about how I never encountered a book uh, that that used an airport as a way of getting at a larger urban history. So what drew you to the topic of SFO, uh, San Francisco's airport, as a way of understanding this history of the Bay Area? I guess what I'm asking is why an airport and why this airport specifically?
0: Yeah, Steve, well, it's a complicated story. I mean on some level this is a return to some work i thought i might do when i was in graduate school um, i had thought at that point in time that i might actually before i ended up doing getting into cultural intellectual history i thought i might do uh, uh, some kind of bay area urban history project um, this is a moment in the early 1990s when um, you know mike davis's city of courts was influencing a lot of people as were a lot of other urban studies across disciplines. So, you know, I had thought at some point, I might do something, um, you know, on the Bay Area that sort of follow the lead of some of those other studies, but then again, went in a different direction. Um, But then, you know, about a decade or so ago, um, after doing a book with a friend and colleague, Lewis Watts, who's a photographer, about New Orleans and the cultural reconstruction of that city post-Katrina. Um, you know, that that sort of study of a place that I had only recently familiarized myself uh, made me want to return to do something on the place where I was from. Um, and it was, you know, one of those one thing led to another situation. Uh, eventually it dawned on me that writing about an airport. Um, as a place where lots of different kinds of people and networks come together. You know, it might be an interesting way to think about how networks and relationships of various kinds help define, constitute an urban area. Um, airports are also places where um, they're kind of repositories of accumulated power in a region um, in terms of the money behind them, the, um, political figures, uh, business elites who, you know, sort of um, interest in developing them is reflected in these infrastructures. So, it'd be, you know, I thought it might be an interesting place to look at asymmetrical relationships and networks. And again, the way that uh, power is expressed, accumulated in a region. Um, you know, I also, after writing about a lot of, you um, Things that I was either deeply critical of or um, wanted, you know, wanted to honor on some level. It, it um, I thought, it might be an interesting challenge to write about something um, which I'm ambivalent about. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of ambivalent about flying. I'm ambivalent about spending time in airports, and I thought that might be an interesting exercise. Um, and you know again this in terms of the part of your question about why this airport in particular um, again it's part of the project of trying to make sense of this region um, where i'm from i also have some family history that intersects with this airport my grandfather was a skycap at sfo or a porter he began working there in 1942 a skycap for people who don't um know the term, because there aren't many skycaps left at airports is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's an occupation, these are people who um, typically greet passengers at the curb and, you know, carry their baggage inside the airport. And, you know, prior to 911, sometimes would check people into their flights at the curb. Um, you know, it was uh, historically an African American occupation. And, you know, my grandfather, you um, was um you know got a job his at that point in time his family was living in um uh, shreveport louisiana um so he secured this job through word of mouth you know, at, at, at san francisco's airport 1942 started working there um and then my grandmother and my father and my aunt joined him a year later so that was sort of um, that event sort of inaugurated my family's participation in the um, second great migration of African Americans from the um, south to the um, to the uh, uh, in this case the bay area
1: you know I, I gotta ask because you said that that you're ambivalent about flying and about airports in general um, did writing this book and the process of, of doing kind of a deep dive and research on airports and this airport in particular, did it change the experience that you have when you visit airports now? Like when you go to SFO, do you view it in a totally different way when you're sitting there waiting to to check in for your flight? Are you are you kind of looking at the, the world around you the airport in any kind of new way now?
0: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I guess I have to say I haven't been there that many times <laughs> since working on this book, or at least not in recent years, in part because of... Um, you know covid and you know sort of the lack of travel in recent years but um you know i mean there's some interesting things about ffo in particular uh Namely, it's public art and um, museum project and the museum project is a, um, you know, since the, you know, circa 1980, they've um, had this program where they have a, um, these different installations scattered across the airport and you know, more and more over the years, which, you know, are I mean, these are exhibits of all kinds of different things, you know, pottery from some certain times and places, um, glass exhibitions, um, you know, information about certain local phenomena, um, exhibits culled from different museums in the region. And it, it's really quite impressive. And actually, SFO has won all of these different, um, one some awards, at least, for its, again, public art and museum program. So, um When I happen to spend time there, I have, um, you know, appreciate those exhibitions more. um, And, you know, it's just interesting, you know, now that I know a little bit more about how airports function and the kind of work that people do there um, to see those dynamics in practice. So I'd say... Yes, more of an appreciation, although um, again, I haven't spent um, you know, really that much more time there in recent years, um, although I did do research there. I mean, associated with the, um, um, the museum is an archive, so I was actually able to you know, go to the international terminal um, on quite a number of days and um, sort of go backstage and, um, and, and work in the airport's
1: archives. So I don't usually ask questions about historiography of my guests, but as I said a second ago, just for me, this was such a new and interesting topic, I I couldn't help but be curious, I gotta ask, how much have historians and other scholars written about airports before? What kind of literature were you drawing from for this book, or was this sort of a new intervention in some ways?
0: I mean, I think this is a particular intervention in terms of tr- the types of stories I tell here about a region through the lens of the airport. Um, but there is actually quite a bit of writing about airport um, and flight. Uh, there are a number of, you know, sort of outside of academia, there are quite a few local and regional historians who've written about different airports, you know, across the, the nation and the and the world. Um, for example, the former assistant director of SFO Museum, John Hill, has a book um, on SFO, you know, text and photographs that sort of came out on the occasion of the opening of the SFO's, um, <coughs> excuse me, new international terminal, um, circa, circa 2000. Um, there's also a historiography, by academic urban historians that often links airports to histories of um, urban transportation and city and regional development, and you know some of this work surveys airports across the nation and um, you know seeks to sort of think about things that you know uh, you know t- it talks about things in broad strokes um you know, just about the phenomena of airports, the um, phenomenon of airports in general. Um, You know, there are also, you know, a handful of studies that I know about that focus on individual airports. Um, For example, there's an urban historian named Nicholas Bloom who has a, a, you know, a really interesting book um, on JFK called Metropolitan Airport that sort of links the development um, or the, you know, create or or the renaming of JFK and its development to, you know, a a number of questions around New York City's urban development and sort of urban politics. Um, But, you know, beyond that work by historians, there's, you know, quite an interesting range of um, literature from historians across disciplines who have been, you know, talking about, airports vis-a-vis immigration policy or security issues, um, jet noise, Um, there's a really interesting book by uh, Marina Peterson, who's an anthropologist um, called Atmospheric Noise um, on anti-jet noise protests um, and the phenomenon of jet noise around Los Angeles International Airport, LAX. so you know, there's again lots of different kinds of scholarship, some of which is is, is written by historians. <sighs>
1: I, myself, uh, I've never flown into SFO, or I I might have flown in once when I was like a a child. I was trying to remember. I think I I maybe went once when I was a little, little kid, but for all intents and purposes, I have not been there myself. And you actually, you you start the book with a description of uh, uh, flying in to SFO. Can you describe what it's like to approach the city and the airport from the air and kind of the experience of visiting the airport today? Maybe we should start in the present before jumping back to the history of this this facility.
0: Sure. um... Well, it's interesting to think about flying into the airport because you're right, I do start the um, book with this um, description of flying into SFO at night and seeing, you know, these different configurations of light, you know, outlining. Um, helping one identify different cities and different parts of the infrastructure, you know, the lights that define, well, well airports, for ex- other, you know, SFO and other airports in the region or bridges or, you know, you can they you know, so sort you of show where the refineries are in proximity to the urban areas. So, you know, it's, one can, you um, you know, be presented with an interesting mapping of a region, um, of of the Bay Area in particular, um, and certainly one experience at night is a different experience um, during the daytime. Where um, you know you see this actually, you know, very interesting, beautiful area. Um, you, know, you fly over hills, you fly over water, the Bay. Um, depending on what you know, what direction you're coming in and what the um, what your approach is, um, you know, you may end up over the Bay. You may end up. We almost always end up at the, over the bay at some point. Um, you may end up over the Pacific Ocean at some point in time with some pretty spectacular views, um, at least if you're sitting by a window. If you're not, then you know the views are, are less um, spectacular. And it can be, I mean, it's sort of at once disorienting as you're trying to figure out what precisely you're looking at and how you're situated in the air vis-a-vis the region below. Um, but then sometimes it can also help you understand how certain parts of the region um, region fit together and then you know in terms of the airport itself um, I mean you know in some ways it's like other airports and certainly lots of commentators have talked about the fact there's a kind of homogeneity of airport experiences because we tend to you know um, undertake the same rituals, no matter where we are. And, you know, the aesthetics of airports can be very similar. But, yeah, you know, one of the things I try to argue in different, uh, div- uh, different moments in the book is that they're similar, but with a difference. And, um, you know, there's a way that the SFO's airport signals to you that it's that you're, you know, um, uh, you know, you're, if you're arriving there, at least, you know, um, entering an area, you know, that's sort of known for its multiculturalism, It's known for its you know, histories of political activism, and so forth. And, you know, that gets um, apparently represented in public art and design features and some of these um, ex- cultural exhibitions um, installed by the um, by the SFO Museum
1: so why don't we start getting into the history of this place and indeed why don't we start with the place itself can you tell us a bit about the land on which sfo sit what existed before there was an airport here why this site in particular for an airport
0: yeah so where san francisco international airport sits now i mean some of where it sits used to be not well in the um earlier in the 20th century early in the 20th century at least used to be open water um but the Part of the airport that was originally built in the late 1920s was built on reclaimed salt marsh that was uh, reclaimed by a um, wealthy California banker named Darius Ogden Mills, uh, who was one of the principals of the Bank of California. And, you know, made a fortune in part from financing um, gold mining in the Sierras, um, silver mining in the Comstock and um, and and also financed and, you know, profited from a variety of uh, other extractive ventures and other kinds of um, business ventures that um, helped accumulate wealth in the San Francisco Bay Area and made you know at least a handful of people like himself you know tremendously rich so it was his family his descendants that first um, rented and then sold that land, um, which I guess Mills had originally um, reclaimed to graze his dairy cows. He was a kind of gentleman farmer as well, as well as a wealthy banker. Um, he had originally um, reclaimed the land to, to, to uh, graze his dairy cows. And um, it you know, still it may have been used um, for um, dairying um, when it was um, you know, given to the um, well again, first rented and then sold to the uh, to the city of San Francisco in the, in the late 1920s. So what I do in the book is try to tell the story uh, of of that land as a way of um, thinking about um, the complicated asymmetrical relationships that had helped to make this region um, since that's you know part of the story i try to tell through the region during its existence i start in the first chapter by talking about some of the antecedents of those relationships um you know going back to um, the colonial period essentially so what i do is talk about how this um you know this salt marsh was Sort of adjacent to lands that were originally under control, sort of back and forth between the, um, you know, during the Spanish period, um, between the mission in San Francisco and the San Francisco Presidio, the uh, military outpost. um, And both of those entities used the surrounding lands to graze cattle. And then it, during the Mexican period, it was, you know, these lands surrounding the airport were part of a California rancho. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I, I tell that story as well. Um, and then, you know, as happened elsewhere, um, the Californios lost most of their land to, you um, you know, Anglo business interests and speculators and the like um, during the U.S. period. And you know that's how that chunk of land fell into the hands of the Mills family. And I, you know, talk about some of the relationships that happen on or near the, this land, um, you know, and actually, you know, I should st- go back and say that, you know, I talk about how this land originally was um, stewarded by and used by uh, Ramatush Ohlone people um, who lived in the area prior to um, the arrival of the Spaniards. And, um, you know, the adjacent lands were you know, cultivated and um, um, stewarded by 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 the Ohlone people, and these marshlands, you know, were used for ceremony and used. Um, you know, people hunted, fish, fished, gathered, foraged in the salt marshes as well. So. Um, you know, part of the story, of course, in this colonial context, is the is violence, and part of the story are um, involves other kinds of asymmetrical relationships that occur in this land. And I talk about how, you know, this land was transformed over the years by you know lots of different people, um, you know, including well the land and then the waters as well. Um, Um, just offshore in the bay Um, so transformed by people like the oyster companies who were using um, you know this underwater land for cultivating oysters and by um, chinese um, fishermen who were um, fishing for shrimp in the waters just off um, you know this marshland and you know in waters that subsequently were filled in and um, built on you know as the airport itself expanded
1: So this might be kind of a strange question, given the world that we live in today, where airports are very much an assumed part of urban infrastructure for any city of any sizable city at all. But thinking back to the early days of uh, air travel, let alone commercial air travel in the 1920s. Why build an airport at all? What does an airport represent for a city, for city elites, city uh, uh, sort of the the people, the city leaders, right? What does it represent for these people, for the city itself in this kind of very early period of air travel?
0: Well, I think early on, and we're talking about the 20s and early 30s, um, you know, the airports represented progress. Um, They represented innovation. Um, They represented... um, an ability to, you know, kind of triumph over nature and manipulate the land and the laws of physics, or defy the laws of physics, and um, you know, you know, in that sense, symbolize human ingenuity and a capacity for expansion and progress. Um, you know in the bay area um, amongst uh, and in San Francisco, in particular among um, city elites and business elites uh, you know there was early on a recognition that um, air travel as it developed might open up doors for a kind of soft imperialism and you know in the Pacific world um, and facilitate increasing trade and influence in Asia and elsewhere um, around the Pacific Rim um, I mean it was sort of unclear exactly how that might happen because you know early on planes did you know planes were small and couldn't go very far and if um, and you know a lot of the focus was on just airmail transportation but you know eventually you know, people you know became more and more invested in the idea that you know um, um you know airplanes could transport pe- people and goods to and from overseas destinations and again sort of you know lead to a um, and support um you know in this case a regions uh, imperial destiny and you know the, the development of um Wealth in the region. Um, another part of the story is that there's, you know, as, you know, early on in the early in the airport's history, there's a, there's a lot of competition between San Francisco, the Bay Area, Los Angeles, um, the Seattle um, Seattle, in terms of which of these urban areas is going to be most in influential and best reap the rewards of economic expansion in the West and, you know, into the Pacific Rim. So, you know, there's a, there's a fair amount of competition between these regions and um, a fair amount of anxiety among leaders in these regions as to who will win this struggle. And, you um, uh, people see you know and some of this is focused on um, shipping and um, those folks who are supporting the early development of aviation see um, see, see that sphere as a way to um, you know have an increasing influence in terms of trade and um, you know again Pacific Rim trade you know in, in relation to these other in, to, in relation to these other cities.
1: And almost immediately uh, SFO, Uh, begins to have an impact. So when is the airport uh, officially opened? And how does the airport immediately begin to change the city and the region in the years after its construction?
0: Yeah, so the airport first opens officially in 1927 as Mills Field, you know, named after the, um, you know, the family who, um, you know, bequeathed the land to the city. It it takes a while for it to really have a profound impact um, because you know there's, a, there's uncertainty. Uh, I mean, you know, some faith that aviation will um, you know take off, so to speak. No pun intended. Um, but it, it it takes a while for that to do so. And it, SFO has you know kind of a checkered early history. The facility isn't great. You know, there's a problem with. Um, the airfield, which the, you know in those days initially was dirt, um, you know, with, um, you know, the, the, like during the rainy season, um, the, the airport being, um, you know, very, the, the airfield being very muddy. Um, the weather isn't great. There's um, competition with um, what becomes Oakland Airport across the bay. There's, a, you know, actually early on, The San Francisco's airport ends up losing some of its business to Oakland um, because airlines and, you know, their pilots see it as a better facility, easier to fly in and out of, et cetera. Um, So it takes a while, but eventually, um, well, a couple things happen. You know, the technology changes, um, airplanes become bigger, faster, have longer range. Um, Air... um, Passenger travel becomes more viable as a part of the business. Um, The airlines aren't as dependent on airmail transportation um, in order to succeed financially. And then there is a lot of there. There are a lot of resources put into the development, construction, and expansion of airports um, during the 1930s and into the 1940s in the context of um, the New Deal. Um, the WPA, the PWA, Public Works Administration, um, put a lot of money into airports, both as a way of you know, improving the economy during the um, depression, putting people to work, um, but there's also, a, um, you know, there, there's also a sense within the federal government that, um, you know, airport construction should be subsidized more generally for the you know for the longer term good of the economy and in part because it, it sort of helps with um, civilian defense because there's a sense that the military will be able to use these facilities as well so you know I think once that starts to happen across the 1930s um, and especially especially when the um, the economy starts to um, recover more significantly at the end of the decade and then of course in the 1940s you you know, the airport becomes a more, um, you know, tangible engine of economic growth in the region. You know, again, as um, air transportation, both pass, as, you know, passenger transportation and air cargo um, increase and become um, again more profitable businesses.
1: And after World War II, air travel begins to grow uh, increasingly accessible to non-elites. Air travel becomes more common and, 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 yeah, more more accessible. How does this change SFO? Can you explain the, for instance, expansion of the airport in this era and what it tells us about the changing nature of air travel itself and of the Bay Area as well?
0: Yeah, so the airport expands pretty dramatically. First, during World War II, um, like other facilities. And that's in part because both the Army and the Navy are putting a lot of money into expanding the airport. um, And they're using the facility um, for military purposes, even as it's still being used as a civilian facility. Um, And that continues in the post-war period, there is, um, you know, the U.S. government is putting federal money behind airport expansion, which it sees as, um, you know, it sees the development of air travel, um, air cargo, nationally and internationally, as um, important to the development of the, you know, again, national economy, and also um, the expansion of um, economic interests abroad as well, um, and. You know, again that coincides with and helps to um, promote more access to air travel among um, you know working class and middle class people um, you know and as the economy expands and wages increase you know um, people have you know a growing array of people have access to um, to air travel and can afford it and um, you know airline airlines which were Primarily um, catering to a very elite group of people, start to um, you know, you know, basically. I think this is when you see the development of um, something that we know or used to know of at least as coach, right? Um, and you have these different classes of air, air travel, where you still have this you know this more um, comfortable um, experience catering to elites, but then you have. Um, um, you know, a uh, you know, an, another experience um, catering catering to non elite people, and um, this is promoted locally by um, the city of San Francisco. It's um, you know through its um, you know passes a series of bond measures that. You know support you know just dis- you know different waves of expansion at the airport um you know it's seen um you know based on the um, idea that this is um beneficial to the uh, uh, local economy beneficial to working people um and you know that you see you see that developing as well um although of course this develops in ways that are unequal um, because again, not everyone has access to these airport jobs that are, um, you know, one of the things that are promoted as beneficial to the community as, um, you know, that go along with the airport expand, you know, the expansion of the airport. Um, you know, one of the things that this city uses to justify the, um, you know, its appeal to voters to pass these bond measures, um, the airport is, um, you know, pra- you know the, the airlines and other entities doing business at the airport. Um, you know they engage in you know systematic, dis- systematically discriminatory employment um, practices. You know through um, through the nineteen fifties.
1: Well, those kinds of practices are are what I wanted to get into next, because in the 1960s and 1970s, SFO becomes a a contested space, a site of protest, Uh, becomes a space that represents to some people inequality and political neglect and power imbalances. So can you explain some of these controversies surrounding the airport in this era and maybe what some of the outcomes of these protest movements are?
0: Sure. So the... um... I mean, as the airport grows, it has a bigger, bigger, big, and bigger impact on the region, um, both as this big, noisy infrastructure that is sort of heard and felt in its surroundings, but also creates other transformations, um, you know, in, in proximity, like you know, increases in traffic congestion. Um, you know. Based on you know travelers going to and from the airport, um, as well as workers going to and from the airport, um, and you know it's a public infrastructure, and you know there are you know different expectations by different constituencies in the regions um, about what this era, what this big. It, infrastructure might offer them or not and you know what are you know what the costs and benefits of having this um again ever expanding infrastructure in the area so um you know one of the big questions again is you know what are the costs and benefits of this publicly subsidized infrastructure and the associated economic and other kinds of growth um you know and how you know who are who precisely are the winners and losers when it comes to you know what the airport has to offer. So you know one of the things I do in the middle of the book, I have um, you know some chapters that you know are all focused around different kinds of protests that happen in or in relation to the airport. Um, one of them is um, you know going back to what I was talking about earlier, is a, um, mm-hmm. a one of the chapters looks at black, anti-discrimination struggles at the airport from the 1950s, late 1950s into the 1980s. And, you know, like other airports, a lot of other airports across the country, um, you know, SFO just didn't hire or hired very few black workers. Um, prior to the civil rights movement, um, you know, um, ramping up in the in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and most people who most black workers who were hired were doing um, basically service work. And you know, a lot of it was low paid service work, like janitorial work, or, um, you know, having lower wage jobs in food service. Um, although sky caps were, you know, that was a service occupation that that actually paid paid pretty well. But, you um, You know, what I trace, you know, I mean, there was for a while, you know, in part because of discriminatory practices at the airport and also because Mm -hmm. activists tended to be focusing their efforts elsewhere, there seemed to be more opportunities. Local activists weren't really paying much attention to the airport. But eventually, you know, again, as airport employment expanded and also in the wake of some um visible anti-discrimination struggles focused on airlines um, and on airports elsewhere in the United States particularly um you know, probably most notably focusing on flight attendants efforts to um, get access to, or Black women's access to, Black women's efforts to get access to flight attendant jobs, um, primarily in the Midwest and the East Coast, um, local activists started to ramp up their efforts to get um, Black people jobs at SFO. And so what, what I trace are a number of different struggles by, Civil rights organizations, church organizations, to get access to jobs. Um, there, you know, there are also efforts by the city of San Francisco and its human um, um, human rights council to um, institute affirmative action programs at the airport to try to open up um, airport work in part because of. This pressure from civil rights organizations. Um, I talk also about efforts to improve the kinds of jobs that Black workers could get at the airports. You know, in the face of union discrimination and its discrimination by um, by the airlines, and you know that involves organizing at different levels. It involves you know some excuse me Black workers you know, working within their unions, it involves um, other Black worker, black workers, um, and sometimes some of the same Black workers organizing outside of their unions through um, Black employee organizations that cut across occupation to try to um, work sort of differently with the airport airlines to improve their status as workers and again gain access to um, other kinds of jobs and that and sometimes involves putting direct pressure on airlines to institute affirmative action programs Um, there's also there are also efforts by um, black contractors and other um, business people to get access to, um, to establish concessions at the airport and get access to contracts, construction con- contracts for airport, um, airport um, um, construction contracts for airport expansion. So it's a really complicated story. And one of the things I try to, 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 You know, suss out and describe here, you know, going back to what I said earlier about airports being really fascinating places where lots of different people and networks come together is just how complicated the um, terrain of activism is and how many different kinds of um, um, groups and people are involved to try to. um, you know, make employment conditions or um, business conditions better, better um, for black people. And you know, in terms of you know the, the question about outcomes, the um, I mean, the outcome is that there were some successes, but there were also pretty significant limits. And uh, the black workers were able to, you know, make significant gains in certain occupations but not so much in the professional ranks and the in terms of on the business side of things um you know there was a moment when you know the representation of black business people in airport contracts and concessions looks more or less like um What you might expect in the broader um, Bay Area population, but, you know, once some of the affirmative action programs were cut back in the wake of the Bakke decision and the like, um, you know, some of those gains were lost. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the chapter is that, um, you know, what. Black workers and business people were able to achieve was a kind of patchy inclusion in terms of participation in this infrastructure um, that you know never quite succeeded, and you know in some to some degree in later years, um, you know that that foothold actually diminished, um, which you know had some had some parallels in terms of the broader story of um, the black presence in the um, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, another thing that another chapter you know from this part of the book that i um um that involves protest has to do with anti anti, anti anti-jet noise protests in the area and i I, I talk about the ways that the um there's really interesting story of how you know suburban quality of life politics um which you know sort of was Define kind of early anti jet noise um, protests in the late nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties um, began to coincide more and more with um, a burgeoning environmentalism in the um, um, in the region, and it was um, you know so again, there's a long history of anti jet noise politics. Um, the result of which is that there were some successes um, in terms of um, putting pressure on the airport to make some changes in flight operations and to assist communities in terms of developing programs that included things like um, you know, providing grants for people to insulate their homes to make them a little more soundproof, um, and that along with changes in technology, you know, led to some de- decrease in noise around the airport. But it's um it's a complicated story. Um, you know, people are still um complaining about jet noise. You know, decades and decades later, and you know, it's often different communities get drawn into this. Um, Economy of noise and protest, and in, in, um, you know, after <clears throat> there are changes to flight operations for different kinds of reasons and you know, um, approaches to the airport, um, the flight paths are changed or um, altered somewhat, and that you know can make things noisier, less noisy for one group that had been experiencing noise, and, and, and uh, noisier for another group. So, I think that's another, and- another interesting part
1: of the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, and this story of, of SFO being this kind of hub of activism and a symbol for you know uh, power dynamics and inequality, this doesn't end with the 20th century either. This is an ongoing story well into the 21st century too. And in the book, you talk about the airport becoming a hub of uh, immigration-related activism in the early 21st century. Can you talk a little bit about that? And kind of similar to the last question, I'm curious, what were the outcomes and maybe also the limits of that particular version of activism at the airport?
0: Yeah, so there are a couple things notable in the 21st century. I mean, I talked about some, some immigration related protests that happened earlier as well, um, but certainly a couple of notable protests that happen sort of at the airport and then have resonance, you know, in activist communities, um, you know, across the Bay Area i mean one are the protests on behalf of by and on behalf of um non-citizen security workers at the airport many of whom were filipino um after 911 the um aviation transportation security act that was passed um you know, which you know, among other things, establishes the um, um, Transportation Security Administration, the TSA, that. Um, imposes a citizenship requirement on um, airport security workers, um, which jeopardizes a um, the jobs of a lot of, um, again, in particular Filipino workers, um, you know, who are on, you know, who had green cards or were on work visas who did security work at the airport. So, you know, a lot of activism on their behalf to try to um, get them, you know, let them keep their jobs. There was a, um, you know, they were able to kind of delay the um, impact of the um, the um, the Security Act. Um, so that it didn't take place at SFO for, um, until a little later than it did at some other airports. Um, but eventually, the non-citizen workers um, lost their jobs. Um, another thing I talk about um, briefly, and this is something you know that was in the news just several years ago, is after you know Trump, President Trump's so-called Muslim ban, there were um, you know significant protests at SFO, as there were at other airports across the nation, you know, um, you know, um, protesting the, um, you know, the attempt to, um, you know, prevent um, people from um, different countries from, um, you know, entering the United States, um, you know, primarily Muslim countries from um, traveling to um, entering or immigrating, um, immigrating into the United States. So, um, know yeah, one of the things I talk about in this chapter um, is that in these struggles sometimes to present present you know protect the rights of um, people to, in one case, hold jobs, in the other um, case, to um, enter, uh, return to the country. Um, there's often this rhetoric of deservingness um, that gets mobilized to support their cause. You know, for example, you know, uh, when it comes to the non-citizen workers, um, you know, this, there's this sort of rhetoric around their patriotism, their commitment to the nation. Um uh, when it comes to the um, Trump's Muslim ban, you know, often, you know, what you heard some activists at least say, not all, but some activists say is, you know, really focused on the deservingness of certain people who would be affected by the ban, like, you know, well, look, these folks are students at Stanford and Berkeley, or these folks are, um, you know, they're working in the tech industry um, and are contributing to the local economy that way. And sometimes when that rhetoric was mobilized, it, um, you know, it it focused on the deservingness of some people. and kind of assume the undeservingness of other people as well um you know for example like some of this rhetoric um supporting the patriotism um of filipino security workers um Sort of assumed as okay the targeting of um, Muslim travelers as potential terrorists, um, you know, vis-a-vis that security apparatus or that um, rhetoric which um, you know tended to champion the causes of you know students at elite institutions, elite universities or. Uh, workers in the tech economy, you know, didn't really have much to say at all about lower wage workers, say. So I, you know, I talk a little bit about the uh, limit, the, the sort of rhetorical limits of, and the political limits of, of, of those mobilizations. Um, although that didn't, of course, define all the people who are involved in these struggles, um, because other people were, you know, for example, there were activists who were, um, you know, finding common cause between um, Filipino workers who were seen as, you know, not sufficiently American, um, you know, as people from outside the U.S., as a racialized population, finding common cause and similarities between their experiences and Muslim Americans who were, you know, again, targeted by the security apparatus.
1: So as we begin to wrap up here, um, I'm wondering if we can maybe look to the, 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 the present and maybe the future a little bit. And I'm wondering what you think SFO, what this, this airport, this, this institution, what do you think it tells us about the contemporary Bay Area? And then looking forward a bit, what is the future of this airport? I mean, I don't think anyone will predict that the airport is, is going to shut down anytime soon or anything so dramatic. But how do you see it changing? And with those changes, how is the Bay Area going to change?
0: So in terms of you know, how it represent how it reflects the Bay Area, I mean I think it's interesting, and I think the story is um, contradictory. I mean, on one level, I mean, again, going back to the art and design elements and the um, the cultural exhibitions. I mean, there's a way that this airport, and you know, aesthetically, in terms of who works there, reflects the multiculturalism of the region. Um, I I think a lot of the artworks reflects, speaks to the progressive politics that define the region. Um, I mean, even some of the politics of the airport, I mean, even some of the operations of the airport itself um, reflect some of the progressive dynamics in the bay area um you know there well, over the last couple of decades there's been a um a kind of living wage program established in at the airport, which um, kind of imposes, you know, by the city, by the airport, that sort of imposes uh, living wage requirement on airlines and other entities that do business there. That's sort of tied to living wage efforts in the Bay Area and San Francisco um, more generally. Um, the airport has, you know, as far as airports go, has engaged in a pretty, you um, uh, impressive array of sustainability programs that um you know i think also reflect the um you know, the Bay, you know, the the sort of impact of environmentalists in the Bay Area and and their ability to shape the operations of um, a a number of kinds of um, civic institutions, infrastructures and and businesses. Um, All that said, I mean, the airport still reflects the profound and growing inequalities um, that define the region. Um, I mean, you can see that, you know, these sort of racialized class dynamics are apparent at SFO like most airports in terms of who does what kind of work there um and what kinds of occupations people have um um you know, you know either with whether working for the airlines or working for some of the concessions and um you know also reflected i guess maybe in an indirect way in terms of just the hierarchies that define air travel in terms of um, you know who gets access first to airplanes who sets sits where on airplanes you know who has access to certain kinds of lounges and the like um And, you know, again, this is, um, you know, this region, like others, is, you know, undergoing, um, you know, uh, we witness I mean, not like, not like these asymmetries didn't occur before, but this is this kind of, um, you know, contemporary exacerbation of, um, you know, um, differences and, you know, sort of resegregation of the area. So I, I, I can see um, that the airport is a kind of macrocosm of that. Um, you know, in terms of the future of the airport, I mean, again, yeah, like, like you said, it's a little hard to predict. I think one of the, you know, getting back to the sustainability and um, programs, I mean, and some of the other things, the sustainability programs, which are related to some of the things, I mean, one aspect of that are the things that the airport is trying to do to, to the extent it can ameliorate climate change. and. Um, you know, it's doing some interesting things in terms of energy conservation and trying to put support um, behind this project to develop alternative kinds of jet fuel. Um, tied to that is a reality that sea level rise uh, could have a pretty profound effect going forward um, on airport operations. Um, I mean, not only, I mean, this is an airport built. Right next to the bay, and you know, so it is, uh, and, and you know, the runways aren't very high above the bay water at high tide at the present. And um, in addition to that, the airport is sinking, um, in part because it was built on um, landfill, and you know, just the, the the enormous weight of the runways and the um, concrete and steel infrastructure is causing, um, as scientists have recently discovered, the um, Airport to sink at a fairly alarming rate. So, one of the things the airport is doing is trying to, um, it's in the process right now of developing plans to build a seawall that would um, potentially at least protect the airport from some of the sea level rise that could happen if projections are correct by about 2100. Um, you know, whether that will be successful or not is a, well, it's dependent on one on, um, know what level of sea rise sea level rise actually happens and whether these um site-specific remediation projects um you know protection projects can actually be successful when you you know when sea level rise is a systematic kind of um of phenomenon so yeah, we'll see. I guess one of the things—I mean, you know—back to your question, you know, it it may not have much of a future if these aren't successful. Um, but it's um, you know it'll be interesting to see how that story plays out in terms of um, you know this bigger story of how climate change will affect a region again built you know, around these bodies of water and, you know, to what extent will trying to ameliorate that, you know, what communities will that take into, you know, who will be protected? What communities interests will be taken into account? Um, you know, to what extent will that project be, um, you know, will it be democratic? Will it, you know, protect the interests of low income people as well as, you um, you know elite interests and you know it's i mean as one can imagine you know it's um there's certainly um lots of factors lining up that would um seem to indicate that it will be the interests of the powerful um the interests of those um institutions infrastructures that um uh, serve power serve elite interests that will be protected first um but again you know that story is still unfolding
1: And then finally, at the end of of my conversations, I always like to ask my guests to uh, imagine themselves, well, imagine their book through the eyes of, of one of their readers, of someone reading this book, and then remembering the book maybe a year down the line, maybe a couple years down the line. What do you hope that this reader would remember or would take away from this book, thinking back on it from a few years later on?
0: Well, I'd hope they would take away that there are lots of interesting stories that you know compose a region and its development over time, um, and that they'd be drawn to some of the ones that are in this book. You know, again, regarding the anti-discrimination struggles that happen at the airport, or you know, the anti-jet noise struggles. Um, I hope people would think that telling the story of a particular piece of land can be interesting. Um, but I think you know, maybe bigger. Um, Takeaway that I hope people would um, get from this is that airports are really fascinating, strange places. That um, they're not all the same. They actually do, in really interesting ways, serve as um, touchstones for a region, and they, in a sense, are archives for a regional uh, for a region's history. Um, I mean that can be read sort of alongside other kinds of archives to tell again you know interesting stories of encounter and um, network power and the like in in a particular region. I mean this one that I wrote about, but other other regions, of course, as well.
1: Uh, I know that I'm I'm flying next week, and I know I'm going to be looking at the two airports that I'm going to be traveling through with very new eyes after after reading this book. So thank you very much.
0: Okay, you're welcome. I hope they are interesting. That ends up being an interesting experience for you.
1: Well, that's the thing is that, you know, it's two airports I've flown through a lot, and in the past they never have been, but now I think they will. So, in that way, I think this book was pretty successful. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Great. I'm I'm glad to hear that.
1: Dr. Eric Porter is a professor of history at the University of California at Santa Cruz. And his new book is A People's History of of S.F.O., The Making of the Bay Area and an Airport, which came out with the University of California Press earlier this year in 2023. Thank you so much once again for joining me today, Eric. You're welcome. It was a real pleasure.